Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Have you ever had an until moment? That is... Everything was going great until fill in the blank. Like, we were having such a good time throwing rocks into the street until we hit that guy's car. Or my vacation was going so great until we ended up in the ER. Or that relationship was going really well until he met my dad. Of course, there are other until moments that are a little bit more serious. Our lives were going really great until the cancer diagnosis, until the divorce, until my mom died, until the shooting, until, until, until. Most of us have experienced an until moment. Sometimes they're small, Sometimes they seem really big and insurmountable. Sometimes we have the skills to be able to cope with them. Sometimes they make us feel alone and afraid and hopeless. Sometimes they impact just an individual. Sometimes they impact a family or a whole community. What's your until moment this morning? Followers of Jesus aren't immune from these until moments. And in fact, it's been a very, this very text that we read this morning from the book of Acts that we see and encounter an until moment for God's people. And this until moment impacted both an individual and a community Because things were going so well for the early church, and this is what the the whole nine weeks that you've been studying the book of Acts so far this summer, you've seen these amazing moments of 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus, of dramatic conversions of the Samaritan, of the Ethiopian, of Saul, of Cornelius. God is on the move in dramatic and powerful ways. And of course, we also saw that Even in the midst of this, there were setbacks, like Stephen's martyrdom. But in the middle of it all, the kingdom was moving forward, and it was moving with great force and wonderful expansion. We're going to, in the next chapter even, find that Luke records this dramatic expansion of the kingdom through through Paul's missionary journeys. But first, we come to this until moment for the people of God. Things were going so well until this. So how should we respond to our until moments? I think the Bible and our text specifically this morning offers some help and some hope. If you'd like to turn to page 1401 in these Bibles in your seats, we'll read some of this text together, kind of talk through how this instructs us in dealing with our until moments Page 1401, this is Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. 
He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now, this Herod in your mind, should probably conjure up some familiarity because it's actually his grandfather who was described in the beginning of Luke's gospel as the one who, remember him ordering the the slaughter of all the kids to and under around the area of Bethlehem in hopes that he would also kill this baby Jesus who was supposedly the king of the Jews. So he comes from a family, especially Herod the Great, who was in that story, who was not afraid to dispose of anyone who could potentially be in the way of uh, his kingdom and the security of his kingdom. And so the Jewish people weren't too keen on Herod's family. And so you could imagine that Herod, any chance he had to win the favor of the Jewish people, he would jump on that. And so he was very much trying to earn the favor of the Jews and also keep the favor of the Roman authorities. And so you, you could tell then that it's in his best interest to dispose of any movements that are counter to the Roman peace and to also be respectful of the traditions of the Jewish people. And so he thought, well, why don't I test the waters and do away with James, who was one of the three. Now, we kind of gloss over this, but this is a big deal. James was one of the three closest disciples of Jesus. Peter, James, and John, that that trio. This James was put to death. And so Herod went after kind of a a lower-level leader to see what the people thought, and the people were happy. And so then he proceeded to go to the top. I'm going to go to Peter, the leader of this movement, this Jesus way, And so he takes him in, but it's during this season of unleavened bread, which started at Passover, and it's a seven-day period. And according to Jewish law, you can't do trials or sentencing or executions during that period because it's a holy period. And so he has him put in prison. But this isn't just an imprisonment. You see that this is sort of a maximum security situation. He's binding them. He's putting lots of soldiers here. He doesn't want to be... Uh, made a mockery of by some prison break and some escape. So this is a really desperate situation. We shouldn't gloss over this. Oh, we we know the end of the story. This was a crisis for the early Christian community, the early followers of Jesus. This was an until moment. Great, until, oh man, now what? What are God's people going to do? They're going to stage some sort of attempt to break him out. What's the response? Verse 5, we see their response. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Our English translation can obscure this, and I love this parallel here, just on the other column in in these pew Bibles, the NVI, because in Spanish, it's not as, it's a little more clear. Because there's a past tense in Spanish called imperfect. There's a preterite, which is just an action, but there's an imperfect, which is a continuous past action. Greek actually has that same tense of verb, and that's the tense here. So when we, when we read over here that the iglesia, where is it, oraba, 
They were praying. It's not that they prayed once and it was done. They were praying over a period of time. And so as Peter was imprisoned, in perfect tense, it was going on for a period, the church was praying. And they weren't just praying a quick passing prayer. They were praying earnestly. This, this fervent word here was also used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This, pure, this intense agony that Jesus was undergoing when he's praying, oh, Father in heaven, please let this cup pass from me. It's full of passion. It's full of zeal. It's full of intensity and urgency. Have you ever prayed like this? Have you ever been in a place that you're so desperate that you barely have words? that you're crying out from this place of desperation, from the deepest recesses of your soul. It's so much different from a half-hearted, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you. This is intense, prolonged prayer. Lord, cultivate in our hearts this desire for that type of prayer for our community, for our brothers and sisters. I like what the early church father, John Chrysostom, says about this passage. He says that the church didn't divide into factions or make an uproar, but turned to prayer, that true alliance which is invincible. In this, they sought refuge. I think it's instructive for us, and how do we then respond to these kinds of situations, these places of desperation? Now, please hear me say that there is a place for advocacy. There is a place for um, demonstration and calling for justice and legislation. Yes, those are good things. But the primary calling of the church in this passage is to pray. And that's what underlies every other action that the church takes. Unfortunately, some have started to view prayer as a cop-out. I'll pray for you. Oh, nice. That's real nice. But what are you actually going to do? But we don't get sometimes that this... The, the unified corporate prayer of the gathered people of God is the single most powerful weapon on the planet against the forces of evil. It made me think of last November when our bishop, Bishop Stewart, was in Nigeria and he was proclaiming the gospel to thousands. Hundreds of people confessed their faith in Jesus. Power was released for ministry. The kingdom was coming in earnest until... Until we got the news. First, it was dehydration. Then it was kidney stones. Then it was malaria. And it just, the, it kept getting bleaker and bleaker to the point that he almost didn't make it on the flight home. What did the church do? Did what the church has always done. The church prayed. The church gathered together, small groups, large groups, all over the region and started praying for him with urgency, with intensity, with zeal, this fervency that we see here. So while the church was praying fervently during Peter's last night, at least that's what Herod thought, that this was going to be Peter's last night, their prayer was being answered unbeknownst to them. And let's continue then in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. 
Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. So Peter comes to himself and says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So not only did we see first that prayer is the natural atmosphere of God's people and the normal context for God's activity, that's what we saw in the first, in verse five specifically, the natural thing that the church did was pray. It was the air they breathed. It was the normal way that God worked. But now we're noticing that the emphasis in this story is not on the church really at all, but it's on the Lord and his work. Similar language to Luke 2 in the infancy narratives of Jesus, when an angel of the Lord comes and there's a light. This, again, another supernatural event transpiring before their very eyes of God coming and doing something. Chains falling off. Peter just kind of sleepily doing whatever he was ordered. I just chuckled. It reminded me of getting the kids out of school, out to school, out the door every day. And they're kind of half awake. Do you have your books? Do you have your shoes? Do you have your drumsticks? The angel is just the one, okay, do this, do this, do this. God is the one initiating and carrying forward this whole series of events. Passing through these three levels of security, a gate opening on its own. This is movie stuff. What in the world? It's a, it's a miraculous, and of course, some people explain it as just, it, was a, it was an inside job, someone paid off and bribed the, the soldiers. And, but this is all framed in, in Luke writing this as a miraculous series of events, the hand of the Lord at work in power. In verse 11, this specific wording that we find again in verse 17, the Lord has rescued Peter from Herod. The Lord has rescued Peter. And so here's the second thing we learn about until moments. Not only is prayer the normal context for God's activity, the atmosphere of God's people, but the delivering power of God is greater than the enslaving power of evil. The delivering power of God is greater than the enslaving power of evil. This is the whole story of the church in Acts, right? Where it expands and then there's opposition to it. But the assurance is that no matter what happens, no matter what it looks like on the outside, the kingdom is moving forward and God is greater than the powers of evil and they will never prevail against Jesus' church. Never. So we have two kingdoms. We have a kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the church, Each has its own weapons that it uses. The kingdom of the world has its weapons of the the power of the sword, the power of the prison, fear, intimidation, which are always the tactics of the enemy, fear and intimidation, enslavement. But for the other, the power of the, or the, the kingdom of the church, their weapon is the delivering power of God. And that power of God is invoked as they're praying together. 
as God's people. The true king, Jesus, is set up against the maybe official king, Herod. Jesus has already been proclaimed as king in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And this local king is threatened by the progress of that other kingdom. And he now has done everything in his power to stop the expansion of that kingdom. And it hasn't worked. The true king is vindicated against the sham. And after this, Jesus will be proclaimed as king throughout the entire known world at the time. And this is good news for us in a world where it appears, honestly, that evil is sometimes winning. When we hear another story of another mass shooting, more words of hatred and racism that are spurring these actions of violence toward others, especially the vulnerable. When we hear about deplorable conditions at detention centers in the southern part of the United States, And even in our own lives, when it feels like the forces of evil are just overcoming the work of the Lord. And like, what is this? This doesn't seem like it should be right. But we take heart knowing that God's power to deliver is stronger than the enemy's power to enslave. And this power is unleashed specifically when God's people pray earnestly and fervently Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. This is the hilarious part of this whole story. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door, everybody, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, ah, it, it must be his angel. So what we're seeing here is that the church in Jerusalem was so big that it couldn't come together and do these prayer things in one place, just too large. So it had these large homes throughout the area where people would come and gather for fellowship, for prayer, for worship in these settings. It also reinforces what we said earlier, that that prayer is the natural context of God's work and the normal atmosphere of God's people. This is what they did when they got together. The prayers were important. Yes, there were liturgical prayers at set times. Those were important also. But there was also these, these times that they would gather spontaneously to pour out their hearts to the Lord and pray and ask him to in, interceding uh, for him to act on their behalf. Must be his angel. Now, there were, this could be two different things at play here. One could be that there, there was a belief with the Jews at, with the, Jews at the time that um, someone's guardian angel could look like them, that everyone had a guardian angel. That it, this, isn't, this isn't a teaching of Christian faith, but what many Jews believed at the time, that they had a guardian angel, and that guardian angel could take their form and look like them. So that's one thing that could be happening. The other is that they actually could have thought that Peter died. Because there was another belief among Jews at the time that after someone died, their spirit would continue to walk around for a few days until it would go to the the place, the holding place. And so potentially, they might have thought, Peter's probably dead. This is just his angel visiting us. But then they, they keep hearing the knocking 
uh, let's see, verse 16, Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They were surprised that God answered their prayer. This is so funny. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Now, he just broke out of prison. You know that the people are going to be looking for him, and they're going to go to Mary's house first because they know, probably, that this is one of the gathering places. So, shh, here, let me tell you the story. Described how the Lord brought him out of prison. Again, verse 17, how the Lord brought him out of prison. Same as verse 11, that idea that's just focusing on God's intervention. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Third thing we learn about until moments. So first thing was that prayer is the normal context of God's activity in the atmosphere of God's people. Second, we learned that uh, the power of God to deliver is greater than the power of evil to enslave. Third, we learn that we do play a role, but our hope is in the Lord. We're involved in this process somehow, but ultimately our hope for deliverance is not in us. It's in the Lord. Now somehow in God's divine wisdom, he invites us in and works through our prayers to accomplish his purposes in the world. Sometimes, as we learn in this story, in spite of ourselves, he's doing this work, answering our prayers. This group can't believe that their prayers have been answered so quickly or even answered at all, potentially. And I do find it kind of ironic that these people who were praying so fervently for Peter's release and deliverance would think that Rhoda is crazy, the one who's bringing the news that your prayer has been answered. Peter is actually here. And I wonder... Bible's silent on this, but I wonder if the fate of James had anything to do with this. In the very beginning of this section, remember James was put to death? I can't imagine that the church was not praying for James, just like it was praying for Peter. We don't know that, but why would they not be praying for James with the same intensity? This is our brother. We want him to be released, and I wonder if unanswered prayer was impacting, or in their minds, unanswered prayer. Oh, God didn't come through last time. So should I even, do I, do I even really believe this? I think this helps our confidence not be in the human participants in the story. We can get this complex where we look at these heroes and think, well, they are, they are so far out there. I could never be like that. But in this story, Peter is helpless. He just goes along with the angel. Rhoda leaves Peter outside in danger, knocking at the door. The believers don't believe that Peter is even there. They're astonished when they see him. This is not exactly the great faith of this powerful community, the church, and a picture of, of uh, an imp- a place with no doubt. But the focus is on the power of the Lord to overcome evil. I like what the Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has to say about this passage, and I'll, I'll quote him here. He said, I find all this strangely comforting, partly because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people as most Christians we all know. And partly I find it comforting because it would be easy for skeptical thinkers to dismiss the story of Peter's release from jail as just a pious legend. 
except for the fact that nobody constructing a pious legend out of thin air would have made up this ridiculous little story of Rhoda in the praying but hopeless church. It has the ring of truth, ordinary truth, down-to-earth truth, at the very moment that it is telling us something truly extraordinary in heaven on earth-ish. So this is a great encouragement to me. I think of all the times that I've prayed, not really maybe believing that the Lord is going to answer that prayer, my weak faith, I'm like, oh, I know you could do this, but are you really going to? And, and it makes me think of the, the man in Mark chapter 9 who had a boy who was demonized. And this man brought the boy to the disciples saying, could you, like, this demon keeps throwing the boy on the ground and he's foaming at the mouth and he becomes rigid and he can't talk. Could you cast this demon out of my boy? And they tried and they couldn't. And so he brings the boy to Jesus and, and the man says to Jesus, Lord, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. And Jesus' response to him was, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. And I love the man's response. It's like, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In Matthew's gospel, as he recounts the same story, he says, and puts, uh, notes how Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Just driving home this point that it's not actually our great faith that does this. It is faith in the great God who can do these things. And so I think this actually answers a common objection that people have to these kinds of stories. And the objection is, well, aren't you just demanding something from God? Aren't you claiming your thing that it's yours and then God will give it to you? Isn't this a little presumptuous? And I think this story helps us answer that question. We do pray boldly, but we also pray humbly, just like Jesus did. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer doesn't attempt to manipulate God. We're not trying to twist his arm for something. That's magic. Magic is manipulating a deity. Instead, prayer acknowledges God's place of power and supremacy. We're going to the manager who can do something about it. We're not talking to the server or the customer service rep. We're going to the top, to the person who can actually do something about our situation. I love the prayer of Chrysostom in the Book of Common Prayer. I think it's in one of the evening prayer uh, writes he's, this little phrase in here, fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us. We bring these things to the Lord, acknowledging, however, at the same time that you know exactly what we need, Lord. And I'm going to trust in your wisdom that you're going to answer this in a way that is for our good. It may or may not be exactly what I thought it would look like, but I can trust that in your power to overcome evil, you always win it may look different than what I'm anticipating, but you are going to faithfully answer these prayers. So when we pray boldly and humbly, God takes what we pray and he answers us according to his purposes. Sometimes the answer is what we were hoping for. Other times it's not. But ultimately, he accomplishes his purposes. Peter's released. James was put to death. That's a mystery to us. But through both, the kingdom of God moves forward 
So how do we approach the until moments? We pray. We pray together. And we pray with urgency and tenacity and intensity, knowing that in response to the prayers of the church, the power of God overcomes the power of evil, even in the face of setbacks or our fragile faith. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.